0: Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through registered representatives of Cambridge Investment Research and broker-dealer, member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services through Cambridge Investment Research Advisors Incorporated, a registered investment advisor, Cambridge and Cornerstone Financial Consultants are not affiliated. Welcome to the Journey Mindset Podcast. My name is Sean Ulrich, and I'm a financial advisor at Cornerstone Financial in Washington, Missouri. And I am joined today, as always, by my co-host, Ron Sheer. And Ron is a former financial advisor with a wealth of knowledge on all things investing. So we are lucky to have him today. Ron, what is one thing you are doing to enjoy your journey this week? Well, you know what? We're kind
1: of, at our house, we're kind of locked into the uh, Christmas theme. You know, oh. things are pretty hot and heavy every day. Uh uh, we have a huge uh, storage closet in our downstairs family room, underneath the stairwell, and and uh, there's a big load. A wheelbarrow comes out every day. A wheelbarrow full of Christmas <laughs> stuff, and uh, you know, in the way of decorations, none of the presents and Santa hasn't done his job yet. But you mm. know, I know he's going to get around to it. Usually around. Twenty second, twenty third of December, he kind of kicks in gear. So, but but he'll get it done.
0: I I believe you. You know, for for whatever reason, Santa's on the same schedule for me too. Yeah, you know, it's it's a, crazy how that works well, out.
1: Well, he is a man, you know. <laughs>
0: Oh, that's so true. That's so true. Well, I'm going to hop right into it, Ron. Our topic for today is going to be talking about gas cars versus electric cars as an investable industry. And I got to say, man, we could unpack a heck of a lot more than what we're going to talk about in this 30 minutes of time, but we're just going to try to paint a picture of some of the major players in this industry. And before we get into some of the companies in this show, Ron, I just want to be sure that we're clear that we're not making active investment recommendations on right. the show we're just looking to paint the picture of what the past has been and what the future looks like. It's going to hold. Sure. And so before we get to the present, Ron, my first question for you, and I know that this is right up your alley as a car guy, (laughs) you got some just sweet cars, man. Uh, what are some of your earliest memories of the auto industry? And you know, what kind of an, what kind of a role did you see that play in the economy as you were growing up?
1: You know, I, I think, uh, I think most, uh, most males are this way. You, you, uh, uh, you learn to be fascinated with automobiles and mechanical things fairly, fairly young in life. And I can remember my grandfather um, had a Model A. It wasn't a T, but it was an A. And I remember he kept it and they drove it to church and, and to town for groceries uh, for a good many years. And finally... Uh, I don't know what year it was. I think they, they bought a 49 Chevrolet. I think mm-hmm. they bought it from a, town, a family here in town that lived out on Pottery Road. But uh, I mean, that Model A was the big ticket deal. I mean, you know, and, and that was preceded by the uh, horse and buggy. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, what mm-hmm. a car, you know, I mean, it, uh, it, it, it just wasn't much to it. But it's been a phenomenal thing to see how the automobile industry has changed and and how comfortable they've gotten through the years and how primitive they were when they actually started.
0: It has been a pretty incredible, uh, you know, even over the past, you know, a little bit over 25 years I've been here on this planet. I mean, there's been a...
1: Sean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you, you know, I have socks at home that are uh, older than 25 years. Yeah, yeah, I believe
0: it. <laughs> I believe it. And uh, I, I mean, just when I was preparing for this show, I was looking back, I was like, man, there has been a ton of changes. So according to Statista.com... The big three automakers in today's American economy are GM, our General Motors, Ford Motor Company, and Toyota Motor Company. And the market share that each of them hold as of Q3 of 2020 is just under 17% for General Motors, just under 15% for Ford, and then right around 14% for Toyota. And uh, we're going to be talking about electric vehicles later on in the show. Tesla was just under 3% market right, share right. at this point. And as we always do, Ron, let's learn a little bit more about the history of the U.S. auto industry before we catch up on with where we are today. And so just like we were, you were talking about, when Henry Ford introduced you know, these mass production techniques right. with his automobiles, it has been you know, a key element of the American economy ever since. And the trickle-down effect of the automobile industry has such a huge impact on the overall economy every year, including insurance companies that profit from it, advertising companies for these cars, print and broadcast media that's centered around the auto industry. The maintenance and the repair of these cars and the huge winner, we were talking about this pre-show, uh, was just the oil and gas industry Right, as soon as this boom really happened. And some of the major developments for the automotive industry was immediately after World War II where Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, uh, created a national network of interstate highways that now allowed a driver to cross the country on a four-lane road from New York to Los Angeles without encountering a single red light and one huge impact that has sustained our economy today Ron is the trucking industry and we actually just talked about how massive of a industry this was on our last episode which i believe it's in 28 states it's the most popular job which in turn these highways propelled a housing market boom that uh, actually turned out to make you know the suburban housing Uh, a huge popularity right and so ron with the development of the interstate system what kind of an impact did you see did you see that have on the overall economy and how can you put that into perspective for us
1: well you know what it it was uh back back in my time when i first uh came into being which was uh, the early 50s people typically had one car uh some people didn't have any cars but uh, out here in in uh, rural america which you know franklin county is uh 100 plus thousand people, but it's still, for all intents and purposes, it's more more rural than it is uh, suburban. But but uh, the interstate highways and the highway improvement created, as you mentioned, a, a chance for suburbia and for people in rural America to go into to major cities or, or larger cities and, and uh, find employment and enrich the lives of many people. And the other thing that it did is that uh, it created the need for automobiles. It created the need for a garage. You, you can't imagine how many times you'd go to a farm and if the farmer didn't have, he might have a machine shed, but he didn't have a garage for a simple reason that, that he didn't particularly need one because he didn't, maybe didn't have a car, yeah. but uh, that, that has all changed. And then the other thing that's happened is, is that uh, it's rare today that if you have a husband and wife, that they don't have at least two cars, yep. he has one, yep. she has one. And that's, that uh, that's that's where we are, and that's uh, that's been a very very explosive uh, uh, industry to the extent of how much growth in the production, the number of automobiles that are produced and consumed every year in this country and around the world is just a phenomenal number. It's just uh, it's ridiculous.
0: 100%. And in another article by Investopedia.com titled, How the U.S. Automobile Industry Has Changed, it had some great points that it made, such as it became very clear in the late 50s that foreign competition was going to enter in to the automotive manufacturing space. And in 1958, Toyotas and Datsuns, Japanese-made vehicles, were imported into the U.S. for the Mm -hmm. first time, and the American automakers began losing market share to the well-engineered, gas-saving, and affordable foreign vehicles. Some other major uh, events, according to Investopedia, were that foreign-made, fuel-efficient cars gained a stronger foothold in the American market, During and after the 1973 oil embargo and corresponding rise in gas prices in the wake of the Arab-Israeli War, American firms uh, Ford, GM, and Chrysler responded by manufacturing new lines of smaller, more fuel-efficient cars, which led to those foreign companies actually coming over to American soil to build factories. So for much of the 20th century, the number of new cars sold annually was a really reliable indicator of the nation's economic health. And Ron, what did you kind of see as a dynamic between the American-made vehicles and the cars that actually started coming from overseas?
1: Well, you know what? Uh, the thing that I I will recall about that, particularly when the first models of Toyotas came over, they looked so different compared to an American car. And, and uh, but the reason is, uh, to begin with, they weren't half the size, but they were about three quarters of the size of a regular full size American made car. And uh, they were obviously uh, very well engineered, but they looked weird. I mean, and that's that's the thing. The taste of the American people can change, but it doesn't happen overnight. But but uh, I will have to say that people who are looking for fuel economy in, in, a, in a, a car that would run a good number of miles for a good long while. The foreign cars back in those days, the uh, particularly the Toyotas and the and the Dotsons as they were called back in that time, they uh, they did very well. Now there were always the higher end cars like the Mercedes that came from uh, Germany, and and but truth of matter is, is most of those cars at this at that point in time were still diesel. They didn't, they weren't making very many gas powered Mercedes Benz cars. They were mostly diesel.
0: Interesting. Yeah, did not know that. So when the financial crisis hit the U.S. economy in 2007 and 2008, new car sales declined big time, which had a major effect on the automotive industry. And of the big three car companies we mentioned earlier, Ford was one of the only ones that had a cash hedge against those hard times. But General Motors and Chrysler faced bankruptcy, and the United States government actually stepped in with bailout money, in the form of the Troubled Asset Relief Program, or TARP, to rescue the sinking companies. Right. And uh, Aaron Weidman, the other advisor in this office, uh, had a cool conversation. Him and I had a cool conversation about just the evolution of the auto industry earlier this week. I uh, walked over to his office. Uh, You know, and because current auto companies that I would now consider to be more value investments, I asked Aaron, you know, at what point were those growth investments? And just looking back on Yahoo Finance, you can see some of those major automakers like Ford and GM and Toyota over their life cycle. And this was a, a good lesson for me to have learned earlier on as an investor That, you know, you can think of a lot of businesses kind of like people, you know, they have life cycles or they have stages where they grow much quicker and much faster than, you know, later on in life or in the life cycle of that business where growth starts to slow down, which is why it's unique when companies are able to sustain growth for a long period of time. But that usually eventually happens because whatever market they're targeting becomes more saturated. So I'm curious for you, Ron, as you look back just on the history of the big automakers, how did you see their specifically, you know, their impact on the overall economy over the years?
1: Well, well, one of the things that I think is uh, uh, we we owe a debt of thanks. I think we didn't think so at the time back uh, when when the foreign cars did show up here, and particularly uh, in our area here, we were uh, very, very uh, fortunate. We had the big three all had manufacturing plants. There was a Ford plant and uh, uh, up in uh, 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 Hazelwood. The Corvette was built uh, in St. Louis, and then we had the Chrysler assembly plant there in Fenton. So, I mean, we had a lot, a lot of input and a lot of uh, influence. I mean, we were influenced greatly by the, by, by the big three American manufacturers, and when the foreign car manufacturers showed up here. I think they did two things that uh, that were really helpful to the American people. The number one is, I think they produced a, a very fuel-efficient automobile, which yeah. American cars back in that time um, they might have been pretty to look at and they had a lot of chrome and a lot of jazz, but <laughs> but you know they pass everything but a gas station. They took a lot of fuel. Yeah. So foreign cars, um, they they did uh, work and run more efficiently. The other thing I think that. That did make a difference is that the foreign car manufacturers did a better job of educating their consumer. In other words, educating their con- customer as to actually how to maintain a car. And the American car manufacturing uh, was a little bit lax, I think, in that uh, in that respect. And, and and guess what happened? That uh, that uh, uh, helped the longevity of a car. Because when you when you know the manufacturer reminds you there's time for an oil change which an American manufacturer probably would never have thought to do, <laughs> but it was a very simple thing. But, but nonetheless, it, uh, it, it, it raised the standard for all manufacturing and, and the foreign cars, when they showed up here, we had a real rough time in the mid seventies, the automobiles. And I, you know, people, please don't hate me for saying so, but, um, the mid seventies automobiles domestically made cars were just very, very poorly manufactured. And mm-hmm. then, and we ran into some very, very difficult times in the manufacturing of automobiles in this country. And we had uh, American manufacturers, for GM, and Chrysler, had to change their attitude. And the workforce had to, to buy into that, too. So in the grand scheme of things, it was good for the, it was a short-term pain, you know, but, but yeah. long-term gain. And that's, uh, that's the way that shook out. And I think we owe a debt of thanks to the foreign manufacturers for that
0: can't grow without a little bit of pain right there. Well, that's just it. That's right, baby. That's how we grow. (laughs) According to autoalliance.org, the auto industry is responsible for 9.9 million jobs from coast to coast, or about 5.1% of private sector employment. And auto manufacturing drives $953 into the economy each year through the sales and servicing of automobiles. So to put that in perspective, the total GDP or gross domestic product of the American economy is just over $20 trillion. And I thought this was an interesting statistic, Ron, on on autoalliance.org website, because it says that half of the companies listed on the Dow Jones Industrial Average, one of the major market indices, depends on automotive sales for revenue.
1: Sure. I mean, it's a big industry, big piece of the economy.
0: 100%. And just to big picture this for a moment, you're listening to the Journey Mindset podcast. My name is Sean Ulrich, and you're listening to Ron Shear, and we are Cornerstone Financial Consultants in Washington, Missouri. And you can reach out to us at 636-239-5000. And as somebody is listening to this show, they may be asking themselves, why should I be so aware of what's happening with the auto industry? And we're going to have, you know, a major shift to electric cars in the future. And it's important to know the major trends that have affected the economy to get a good perspective on the direction the economy's heading. And a lot of the times, one of the best ways to be prepared for the future is to look back at the past, which is why we always talk about it. Yes. And wrapping up on our information from Auto Alliance, it states the greater automobile industry extends well beyond the uh, iconic names of auto companies familiar to us all. Auto manufacturing depends upon thousands of companies supplying parts, components, and materials, as well as a vast retail and vehicle maintenance network of dealers. No other industry in America has such an expansive reach into every state delivering economic benefits and creating jobs in so many different sectors. So we know how vital this industry has been to our economy up and until this point, and let's just continue to take a look at some relatively recent moves that's helped to keep this industry th- industry thriving. So according to the balance.com in an article titled The Economic Impact of the Auto Industry, it states that President Donald Trump negotiated a new NAFTA agreement in 2018, which changes NAFTA in six areas, and one of the most important of those being manufacturing. So under the New Deal, auto companies must manufacture at least 75% of the car's components in Canada, Mexico or the United States, and that's 62.5% more than the original agreement. Or at least 30% of the car must be made by workers earning at least $16 an hour, and this number is going to rise to 40% in uh, 2023. And the article goes on to point out that if auto manufacturers do not meet these requirements, they will be subject to tariffs. So I'm curious for you, Ron, do you think that those changes that, will, that were put in place are going to stay with a new presidency or a potential new presidency?
1: Well, I, I think that they will for the simple reason that uh, um, I, I guess I, I should probably preface it this way. I'm hopeful that it does for the simple reason that uh, um, we have uh, we have to maintain uh, some manufacturing in this company. We can't just totally give up on manufacturing because, after all, manufacturing typically are some of the higher-paying jobs, particularly in the auto industry. That's a, a very well-represented uh, industry, and they fought uh, very hard for the, uh, for the benefits of their workers, which is a good thing. I mean, we should all be happy when uh, to raise the standard of living of every American, particularly first, and, uh, and for people around the, around the world, uh, to, to raise their standard of living. So, I mean, I'm hopeful that that will happen. Um, and I realize that there's a bit of a push there because if you're, you're talking about, uh, helping people uh, around the world to raise their standard of living it you know, most people would say at first blush it, well, the best thing to do is then to move your manufacturing over there and give them all the good paying jobs. Well, it doesn't work that way. Yep. And, uh, and I guess I'd have to say, I'm thankful that it doesn't, mm-hmm. um, uh, but but uh, uh, making, uh, making money in, in uh, the automobile, particularly the automobile manufacturing, you'd be surprised how many good paying jobs there are and how many parts manufacturers there are in the community of Washington, Missouri. There are literally dozens of, of machine shops and manufacturing companies that make specific parts tailored to the automobile industry. And that's a phenomenal thing. And it's, it's been a wonderfully economic, it's been a wonderful economic boost, not to just the Washington community, but to the country in general.
0: I was going to say when I first got to the city of Washington, too, I noticed that I noticed how many jobs supported this industry, and I think it's just a perfect show for for our audience. And moving on to the new trend in the automotive industry, Ryan, let's take a look at electric cars. So I was listening to Mary Barra, who is the chairman and CEO of General Mo- right, Motors, this right. morning, who spoke on their twenty-seven billion dollar investment into the electric vehicle. And some of the points that she made uh, were that they are going to increase this investment to release 30 new electric vehicles globally by 2025, including more than 20 for North America. And GM has said that it's moved up its release of 12 electric vehicles, including pickups for its Chevy and GMC brands. And according to an article titled Electric versus Gas Cars: Everything You Need to Know, and I really did think this was an interesting article Ron, uh, and I I learned about a lot I learned a lot about the industry from it. There are three different types of electric vehicles. The first is battery electric or BEVs right. that are solely powered by electricity. And some of the current types of battery battery electric vehicles are the Chevy Bolt with a B, the Honda Clarity, the Tesla Model S and X, the BMW i3, and the Volkswagen e-Golf. I that was kind of a unique name. Right. The uh, second kind of electric vehicle is a plug-in. It's a plug-in hybrid electric vehicles PHEV, which run on both electricity and gas, and they can be plugged in to recharge. This includes the Chevy Volt with a V, Chrysler Pacifica Hybrid, the Hyundai Sonata PHEV, and...
1: Don't you
0: just love this (laughs) outfit? The Toyota Prius plug-in, and the last one, the third one, uh, the less kind of electric vehicle is the hybrid electric (HEV). These rely primarily on gas, but also have electric components such as regenerative braking. Some examples of these include the Honda Civic Hybrid, the Toyota Camry Hybrid, and the Toyota Prius Hybrid. So, Ron, we haven't talked a ton about electric vehicles up until this point, but what's your initial take on the electric vehicle becoming such a bigger part of our economy going forward?
1: Well, you know that that kind of hits me in the heart a little bit for the simple reason. <laughs> you know, I, I like these old, I like these old muscle cars. You know, and mm. in fact. Uh, through various times in my life. I, I've owned a few of them, probably more than I should have. But <laughs> but uh, I, I, I like the old internal combustion engine, but I, I can fully understand from where it is, it's a new day and time and we have to move away. I think really what's happened is, uh, you know, the oil companies, they uh, they played some metal gymnastics with the American consumer through the years when uh, g- gas and a barrel of oil got to $150 a, a barrel and price at the pump was $4.50, all of this electric car technology came off the shelves. And the oil companies were smart enough not to do that long-term, but a couple of times ago, uh, for, for very various reasons, whether it's beyond their control or, or fully in their control, they let those gas prices and those barrel of oil prices stay arbitrarily too high for too long. Yep. And now the uh, electric car market has got a toehold, and it's... it's uh, you know the party's not over but you can see the you can see the lights beginning to go out for the combustible engine and that's that's uh, that's where we is where we are right now i don't think it's a bad thing in fact i think for the environment i think it's uh, makes perfect sense
0: That's a great point, too, and it it perfectly relays into our next point, which is that after understanding the different types of electric or hybrid vehicles that are out there, it's important to understand the costs and considerations that go into making a a purchase of an electric vehicle. So as it stands now, electric vehicles are more expensive up front, but as these continue to be more and more common, the up, up front cost continues to decline. So according to Quartz, which provides global news and insights, the average cost of a new car in June 2019 in the United States was $36,600, which was a 2% increase from the year before. And compare that to, according to Cox Automotive, the average cost of an electric vehicle was 64300 but that's actually decreased to 55600 which is a 13.4% decrease from the year before. So it's going down, you know, looking at sure. from where it's been. It's,
1: it's economy of scale, uh, uh, Sean, and that always mm-hmm. will kick in in, in in any industry sooner or later.
0: And according to Consumer Reports in 2020, a typical electric vehicle owner can expect to save $800 to $1,000 a year on fueling costs, over the equivalent gasoline-powered car. So it's really, it's a long-term play we were talking about. And and the consideration really at this point is, are you willing to pay a little bit more up front to offset some of the costs down the road? So Ron, how do you see this transition from gas cars to electric cars playing out in our economy over the next couple of years?
1: Well, I think you're going to have the old gray hairs that are going to hold on to the Onto the internal combustion engine type of automobile, but I think it'll be the younger generation that will embrace that. And, and, uh, because I think in general, um, I think younger people are a little more concerned about the overall, uh, environment. And, and I think uh, the electric car, I think it can do great, great things for the environment. And I, and I think it's, uh, I think it's all over but the shouting, as they say. I think it's just a matter <laughs> yeah. of time. But, mm. uh, you know, uh, but I think that's the direction we're going to go. And I think it's personally, I think it's a good thing. I, I myself, if uh, most of the cars, with the exception of the Tesla, they look so weird. You know, I mean, they're just strange. <laughs> you know, well, it's yep. my opinion. Yep. They're strange looking cars with the exception of the, of the, the Tesla. And I think why, that's why they're very, very
0: popular is because yep. they
1: actually look like a regular car.
0: And it's sleek. It's slick. It yes. looks quality. There's something to be said for when you look at a product and you say, wow, that you can tell that it's really, really, sure. uh, you know, just well thought out, put together. And I think people like that. I think that's they do too. And for. I think yeah.
1: that's, uh, I think that's where we're headed.
0: And one of the other major discussions that needs to be mentioned, and you, are, you already brought this up, Ron, is just the overall environmental impact that you know the globe is collectively working on. So after researching an article in Forbes titled, Are Electric Vehicles Really Better for the Environment?, it's clear that the emissions from electric cars are much better than normal gas cars. The difference being that the emissions currently generated from electric cars actually happens in the manufacturing process. And the hope is that the efficiency Efficiency of the battery recycling, because I guess that's where a lot of the emissions come from, sure. that needs to power these cars will become better over time. And so to wrap up our show today, Ron, I thought we would talk about two people that might be, you know, uh, I would consider above average intelligence. Some may say genius. Uh, others could argue otherwise. And that are leading this electric car revolution. So another aspect of the electric vehicle that's hitting our economy and really all, all cars in general is the ability to have driver assistance or cars that can drive themselves all together. Kind of crazy. And uh, so there are two different technologies that are allowing this to happen. And there's a really cool article that I read that compared what's happening now between these two geniuses to – Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla, two famous inventors that were responsible for delivering two different ways of electric current. And in Mm -hmm. this article, Ron, that I recently read, uh, a similar battle is happening between Elon Musk, the founder of Tesla and a new 25 year old billionaire named Austin Russell. And it has to do with how the new technology in cars allows them to detect what is around them and function and hopefully keep passenger passengers safer. The article that I read contrasted how Elon Musk is responding to this new technology similar to how Thomas Edison responded to Nikola Tesla's new way to generate electricity. That's a very interesting read and that if any are curious about, you know, I'll kind of leave our audience with that cliffhanger. We might discuss this dynamic on a future show. But Ron, before we wrap up our show today, do you have any final thoughts on electric cars versus gas cars?
1: Well, here again, I, I think that the electric car is uh, is the wave of the future. I think it does some amazing things uh, and benefits for the environment. Um, having said all of that, I, uh, I, I I'm of an age and a generation where there's, um, you know, I still have a I I still have a '69 Chevy Chevelle Super Sport, and <laughs> it is uh, sweet. Well, and, and you know what? Mm. It's uh, it'll pass anything but a gas station. I mean, it mm. just uh, it just drives and runs like crazy. But it takes a lot of fuel, and that's not necessarily the best thing for the environment. Now, the good thing, to this sense, it's a, it's a pleasure car for me, and I don't have to drive it four or 500 miles a week. In <laughs> fact, uh, there's no way in the world anybody can afford to drive a car like that four or 500 <laughs> miles. It just takes too much gasoline. So I think in the grand scheme of things, I think the electric car is, uh, is uh, I think they've, ca- they've caught the imagination and the, and the uh, attention of the American consumer and, and the global consumer for that part. And uh, it's, it's definitely the wave of the future. Now, uh, we talk about the, the necessity to, to, uh, to, uh, to handle the batteries and, and the, the lead, and, but, but technology is uh, going to continue to advance, and, and we'll solve these problems, and they'll become cheaper and, and uh, more efficient as we go along. It's the way most industries have been through the years, and this, this is probably not going to be an exception.
0: I 100% agree. And I know for me, it's just it's a fascinating area to continue to learn more about. You know, I think that as I continue to research the individual companies, I love innovation, I love new companies and new founders starting new ideas. And for me, when I think about investing in the future, that's what we try to encourage people is to look at their portfolio and look at it five, 10 years down the road. Right. You know, what do you think is going to be right. here? And it's just super clear you know, that there's going to be electric vehicles in the very near future there already is. That's going to continue to play a big part in what we're doing. And, and it's fascinating. It really is. And it's something that I would encourage people to look more into when they're considering you know, d- different investable industries. Right. And so the reason for the podcast and the real heart behind all of our messages lies in the gospel. We believe that God sent His only Son, Jesus, to this world with a message of good news. The good news is that we as humans do not need to earn our way into heaven. Instead, we need to repent of the current way that we live, living for ourselves in our own personal glory, and instead choose to invite Jesus into our lives to follow His Word, what we believe to be truth. Ultimately, we believe Jesus, after living a perfect life here on earth, was put to death for no other reason other than saying He was the Son of God, thus being put to death for our sins, which He knew was going to happen. Again, the good news of the gospel of Jesus is something we did nothing to earn. It was a free gift. We know that after Jesus died, we believe He rose again three days later, appearing to those on earth who had deserted Him before His death ultimately ascending back into heaven. After Jesus ascended back into heaven, we receive what Jesus called the Holy Spirit to guide our lives and decision-making. We now have the freedom to live for God, bringing glory to God as a response to the sacrifice that He made for us on the cross. We wholeheartedly believe that we were all created to do good works, rooted in truth what we know to be God's Word. Driven by love with this newfound freedom as a response to this good news. So, as always, be sure to connect with us at thejourneymindset.com or visit our company page at cornerstone, the number two invest.com. And you can reach out to us at 636-239-5000 if you'd like to connect and learn more about what would it look like to invest with us here at Cornerstone Financial. Our goal is always to get to know your particular situation and to see how we can help. Big thank you for tuning in today. We love being on 99.9 KFAV.